Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 17, Cat, Rat, and Dog. Harry's mind had gone blank with shock. The three of them stood transfixed with horror under the invisibility cloak. The very last rays of the setting sun were casting a bloody light over the long-shadowed grounds. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. This week, we are lucky enough to be joined by Kathy Tu, who is a co-host of a queer podcast called Nancy from WNYC Studios, and she is going to tell us a story about innocence. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Casper. A huge fan here. Well, we've been geeking out about Nancy, so we're so excited that you are here to tell us a story about innocence. I'm just going to let you jump right in. All right. So in middle school, I was a huge reader of a series of books like Babysitter's Club and Animorphs. And one of my favorite series was Encyclopedia Brown, classic, classic kids mystery novels. And the thing that I really liked about the mystery novels was that I could never really figure out how mysteries worked. In the end, I would always try to guess it, and I'd get it wrong every single time. But I still loved it. I loved trying to figure things out. So in sixth grade, I had a writing teacher who gave us an assignment, and we were to write our own stories. And I thought, this is, this is it. This is the time when I'm going to try my hand at a real mystery story. So I start writing this story, the story of the missing puppies. And as I got to the end of that story, I still didn't really understand how mysteries worked. And I was very self-conscious about how I was going to end the story. So once I finished writing the story, I turned it into the teacher and I watch her read it because I'm like, once she gets to the end, she's going to be like, what the heck is this? This isn't a mystery at all. And I'm watching her reaction, and she she turns the pages, she turns the pages, and then she finishes, she closes my little booklet, and then she calls me up to the front of the classroom. And I walk up, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, she hates the ending, it's not a mystery, she's going to tell me to go and do this whole thing over again because it's not a real story. And I can feel like all 30 of my classmates staring at me. And she asked me, did you base this story on another story that you read and I start stammering I'm like I think I, I it might be something sort of based on Encyclopedia Brown I've been like reading a lot of his stories and trying to figure out how to do an ending that like made it like a mystery story because I'm really into that right now I'm just like rambling because I'm so nervous and and she looks at me and she looks back at some of the pages that I've written 
And then she's like, I think you copied this from another book. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I made up this story about some missing puppies. And she looked at me again and she's like, the punctuation for the dialogue that you've written is too perfect. A sixth grader can't write this. Like, where did you copy this from? And I stared at her in sort of like a disbelief and humiliation because I'm pretty sure everybody in the classroom heard. And I had always prided myself in being a really good student. And now I feel like that reputation was just like being completely thrown in the garbage. And uh, I don't even think I really said anything. I didn't know how to defend myself because I was so shocked by what she was accusing me of. And then I took my story and I walked back to my desk and I sat down and I kind of just like stared at it. And I just thought the injustice of the world is, uh, I can't believe it. And maybe that's why, maybe that's why I ended up going to law school and then becoming a podcaster. (laughs) Well, if you think it's weird that you went from law school to podcasting, I went from business school to divinity school. So I win on like the weird life trajectory. Wow. I was an EMT at one point. Beat that one. Oh, I worked as a reporter in Second Life for the only professionally produced newspaper in virtual reality in 2008. Boom! Wait, Second Life as in the game? The game, yeah. Oh, my God. All right, yeah. All right, you win. (laughs) Yeah. You win. Also, I sit this far away from you almost every day of my life. How do I not know that about you? I'm full of secrets. (laughs) I guess that's what keeps this relationship exciting. (laughs) Well, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And and thank you for the work that you're doing with Nancy as well. I was just thrilled to hear when it came out first. And we we love the show. So keep up the great work. Thank you. If you could stop making me crying on my runs, though, that would be great. (laughs) We don't try to make people cry. They just keep crying. Every episode, sobbing. (laughs) I'm sorry. Well, you bring a lot of joy to our lives. So maybe, like, together as best friend podcasts, we bring joy and tears, which is, like, the meaning of life, right? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) So, folks, if you're looking for a new podcast, pull out your phones right now and subscribe to Nancy from WNYC Studios. And if you listen closely, in episode five, there's a whole episode dedicated to Harry Potter called There Are No Gay Wizards. And there's an extremely charming guest on with an English accent. I I don't know who it is. but It's Casper. (laughs) Thanks again so much, Kathy. We loved having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Vanessa, it's your turn to start with a 30-second recap. Are you ready? You said that with so much glee. (laughs) Three, two, one, go. So they're really upset because Buckbeak has just um, been beheaded. Oh, no. And then Crookshanks and Whomping Willow and Scabbers. Oh, my God. They they have Scabbers again, but Scabbers keeps trying to get away. And then Ron gets dragged by a big black dog into the Whomping Willow. It turns out that they're actually in the Shrieking Shack. They go down the thing. Then Lupin bursts in. It turns out the black dog is serious. And then Lupin bursts in and he goes, Peter Pettigrew is here. And they're like, what are you talking about? This is just a rat. And Lupin is like, no, that's Peter Pettigrew. And Sirius was trying to kill Peter Pettigrew, but Peter Pettigrew was actually the betrayer. Whew, that was pretty good. Yeah? Yeah, I'm impressed. I feel like I got confused as to what really happened. I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> but you're going to make it all clear for us right now, right? Uh-huh. That is your job. On your mark. Get set. Go. This chapter is filled with drama. So many revelations. Lupin turns out to be a werewolf. <gasps> Ron breaks his leg. 
um, uh, Sirius uh, is like, yeah, I don't deny killing your parents. And then Lupin's like, but I believe you're innocent. And Harry's like, what are you doing? You're supposed to protect us. And then um, Scabbers is everywhere and turns out he's Peter Pettigrew. And Sirius is like, oh, let me tell my story. And Harry's like, no, I want to kill you. But then doesn't have the courage to do it. And there they are. Interesting that you say that Harry doesn't have the courage okay, fine. to kill. That's... That is disputable, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Well, Casper, why don't we just talk about it right now? So, I like to call this Harry's Draco moment, right? We have so much to say about Draco and his unwillingness to kill Dumbledore in book six. But the same thing happens here, right? Harry is overcome, not just with a desire to defend himself. He wants to attack. He's filled with rage, and he wants to kill Sirius, but he doesn't. He doesn't. And for me, I mean, the theme of this conversation is around innocence. And I think it really is about Harry's innocence, not about his courage, as I said in the 30 second recap. Harry doesn't yet see Thestrals. And so he hasn't consciously, as a young adult, seen anybody die, let alone even be killed. And so I feel like there's a missing piece of his own experience of even to know how to kill Sirius. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. He is so innocent that he doesn't know the Avada Kedavra So I'm not even sure how, if he wanted to kill Sirius, he was going to try to go about it. He doesn't have a weapon other than his wand. He's obviously much smaller than Sirius. So even as he's going through, I don't think that his lack of physical ability to do it is what prevents him from killing Sirius. But I think that there's just such profound lack of knowing. He hasn't even thought through how he would do it. But then certainly what totally changes the game is when Lupin enters and to kind of rebalance the situation and take away the threatening element that the trio feel, he gives back Hermione, Ron and Harry their wands. So there's this incredible moment of trust. And Harry is totally thrown now. He's like, I'm 13 and I don't know what is going on. It's a brilliant strategy that Lupin uses here, right? He says, here, I will give you power to show that I still trust you. And I am about to demonstrate that you can still trust me. Lupin is so sure of his innocence. And he's so sure at this point of Sirius's innocence that he just has complete confidence that with clarity of truth, all of this is going to be revealed. Which is a shocking decision because up until this moment, Lupin has thought that Sirius is guilty. This is actually the crux of the whole chapter for me. Sirius is not doing himself any favors, right? Harry says to him, you killed my parents. And Sirius says, like with his greasy hair, I don't deny it. And he's got his hands around Harry's neck at some points. Like there's a lot of behavior that suggests to us, the reader, that Sirius is guilty as charged. But Lupin comes in and without any words being shared, he suddenly makes the mental jumps that hang on, It might have been someone else. Hang on, Sirius might be innocent. And there's some poetic echo of their friendship that is transformed in this moment of Lupin believing Sirius's innocence. Well, I think I agree with you that Lupin's ability to make all of these jumps is just, it's insane. And like his ability to question himself, you know, have I betrayed a friend of mine for the last 11 years by letting him rot in jail? But I want to go back to what you were saying about Sirius, because Sirius knows that he is innocent of actually being the one who's killed Lily and James. And yet the way that he talks about it when, you know, Harry says, you killed my mom and dad, Sirius says, I don't deny it, but if you knew the whole story... And the the fact that he says, I don't deny it, it speaks to me of 
feeling guilty for things that you are actually innocent of, Sirius didn't do anything morally wrong. He made a strategic mistake in trusting Peter Pettigrew. But there's a difference. I mean, there's a legal difference between third-degree manslaughter, doing something innocently that accidentally causes the death of somebody, and with intention going out and murdering somebody. And I feel like it speaks to Sirius's profound innocence in how much he loves Lillian James, that he sees himself as even remotely guilty in their murder. And then the other thing is that I think spending over a decade in jail will make you feel guilty for crimes that you didn't actually commit. And so it's so interesting to me that I feel like if somebody were to say to me, like, you killed these people and this was my first chance to scream, no, I didn't, I would be shouting that from the rooftops. But poor Sirius instead says, I don't deny it. I think it's heartbreaking that he still feels guilty for something that he's actually totally innocent of. Ooh, I think I disagree with you. One of my favorite phrases is that, yes, someone is guilty, but we are all responsible. And I think sometimes we think too cleanly about the difference between guilt and innocence. And especially when we look, you know, at our criminal justice system and the way that we think how justice is done, that guilt is individualized, let alone to speak of the deeply entrenched unjust structures within the criminal justice system. But we think of guilt as individualized in a way that I think is not really reflective of how society works and of how crimes happen. And I think actually Sirius shows remarkable maturity to accept the responsibility that he does hold. Because as you say, he made a strategic mistake and there was no intention to harm Harry's parents. Of course not. But yeah, a decision that he made led to their death. And I think there might be some layers of guilt that he's added on himself during his time in Azkaban. But I think he's also pretty starkly accepted the way in which his choice was interconnected with their fate. And it's something I don't think we do enough of. You know, there are so many ways in which even even the water system is unjustly impacting someone else. And we think of it as just like, I'm just going to have a glass of water. So I, I feel like it's important for us to recognize the ways in which we may not be guilty, but we are responsible. And we should note the mechanics of what had happened, you know, 13 years ago. Sirius was entrusted as the secret keeper, which meant that he was the only one who knew where Lily and James were hiding with Harry. And then because he thinks, oh, but people will suspect that I'm the secret keeper and they'll come after me, let me give it to someone else who they wouldn't think of. And he gives the secret to Peter Pettigrew. And of course, Pettigrew then betrays Lily and James. But nobody knows that Peter is the secret keeper. So everybody assumes that Sirius is the one who betrayed. Exactly. Yeah. Although we should say that, I mean, this chapter is just chaos, right? Like, we don't know any of that when we're reading this. This reads like an adventure film that's shot in the dark where everyone sounds the same and all you hear is like shouting and gunshots. That's hilarious. I imagine it as like a four-person tennis match where it's pitch black. I'm like watching. I'm like, where's the ball? Where's the ball? I'm going to get hit. It's just going by back and forth so fast. You're like, That's what Ron is like. Ron is lying in the corner with his broken leg and he's just like, what's going on? <laughs> Can we talk about Hermione's beautiful moment of childlike innocence that she's worried about? Yeah. It's just so sweet. So when it appears as though Lupin is in league with Sirius for a few pages, I in that moment, if I were Hermione... I think my first feeling would be fear. I'd be like, oh, no, 
two adult wizards, one of whom is willing to murder, the other of whom I know is a werewolf, are actually in league with each other, and I am a child without my wand, right? But she instead what she feels is this profound sense of betrayal. She says... I don't believe it, Hermione screamed. You, you, you and him. I didn't tell anyone. I've been covering up for you. And she just feels like she is watching her innocence shatter. She's saying, I believed in you. I believed that, quote unquote, dangerous creatures like werewolves could be good people. And I feel like what she is so worried about in this moment is is all of my innocence, not innocence, but naivete. Like, was I a chump, right? Like, I mean, the scariest possible moment, she loved Lupin. She trusted him so much. She didn't tell anybody that he was a werewolf. And now it's possible that he has completely been playing her for a fool. It actually shines a new light on how we use the word innocent also, right? There's that that sense of maybe foolishness or naivete, exactly as you said. And what's so beautiful about Lupin giving the wand back is that he says like no that is not what's true there's parts of this that are true yes I am a werewolf yes I've kept that a secret and he's charmed by how she's figured it out and then he says like you are the smartest witch of your generation or or something like that right he gives her this great compliment and then gives the wand back as if to say like you can keep your innocence right like don't lose that your trustingness your willingness to keep a secret when it could have damaged me like don't lose that. That's important. It's this very, very tender moment between the two of them. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that the added innocence that Hermione has here is that she was muggle-born. And so we see Ron's reaction to finding out that Lupin is a werewolf, and he immediately is like, what? You're a werewolf? And because Ron grew up in a wizarding community, he has all of these prejudices against werewolves. Right. He says Dumbledore made a mistake by hiring you. Yeah. But Hermione's innocence of those prejudices allows her to look at the situation with, like, different eyes and is like, well, Lupin seems to be managing this situation. He's been here for months before I figured it out. He clearly, like, is ill and goes somewhere and we're safe. So I'm not going to tell anyone. One thing that does strike me about Ron's immediate response to, you know, Lupin being revealed as a werewolf is that this chapter has a lot to say about what we suspect of guilt and or who we suspect of guilt and who we don't. There's the big, scary black dog, right, who looks bad and, and serious with his, you know, long hair and kind of rough, unwashed look. You know, he's portrayed as evil and, and dangerous. And then there's this kind of small pet rat who we've known for years and who's intimate and my beloved friend. And like is missing a toe, like cute. Right, cute, like little scabbers. Turns out to be this incredibly dangerous, malevolent character. And so I don't know that there's a message in there, I think, about like, let's let's look at ourselves and who we judge as bad or dangerous and who we think, you know, is, is, is innocent when the truth is often more complicated, to say the least. Vanessa, there's a couple of other points that are related in the chapter that I want to ask you a question about. So here's a couple of things. We see a series breaking Ron's leg, right, when he drags him into the tunnel under the Whomping Willow. We see Harry being willing to kill Crookshanks because he, you know, he gets on Sirius's chest to protect his heart from any spell that Harry's going to cast at him. And it strikes me that both Harry and Sirius are willing to cause pain or, or even kill 
kind of bystanders or people who get in the way of what they want to do. And it made me think about in war, you have civilian casualties or in medieval wars, they would burn the field so that local populations wouldn't have food and therefore wouldn't have taxes to pay, which would weaken the opposing side. Um, when we think about bombing, you know, we're willing to accept to some extent casualties in, in schools and hospitals nearby, innocent children. I don't know, it, it just raised this question of, we see Sirius and Harry being willing to hurt innocent people. And what do we do with that? Yeah, and let's make it a little bit smaller only because, like, I don't direct an army. So, but there are still ways that I do that, right? This is something that teachers think about a lot in terms of their classrooms. If you have a student who needs a lot of extra attention, you're giving that student extra attention, but class time is finite. And so are you taking away, are there sort of casualties in the classroom of students who aren't getting your attention? But then do you just ignore the student who needs the extra attention? Of course not. They deserve just as much of an education as everybody else. And so part of it is just how to allocate finite resources and what do we prioritize, right? And in this moment, it becomes clear to Harry that he is willing to prioritize, to some extent, killing Crookshanks in order to attack Sirius. And Sirius is willing to hurt Ron for sure. He does it in order to kill Peter Pettigrew because he is dragging Ron, you know, knowing that Peter is on him. And so I think we just we need to start seeing ourselves, to your point earlier, as complicit in more things and ask ourselves what we're willing to hurt, educate ourselves so we know what it is that we are hurting when we are doing things. So is it important to me to have a diamond ring as my engagement ring, knowing where diamonds come from and the slavery that's involved in that? We have to educate ourselves and think about the collateral damage that we cause when we walk through the world. Although, you know, there's one doubt in my mind, which is for us, breaking someone's leg, you know, their leg is broken. In the wizarding world, right, it's, it's pretty easy to heal those kind of damages, even though there is pain involved. So that's one thing I guess we'll, we'll have to ponder on is there are some differences between us and the wizarding world. Well, and Sirius immediately regrets it, right? Because he's constantly telling Ron, like, sit down, get off that leg. You're just making it worse. So I don't think Sirius is, like, happy about the fact that he had to break a leg, right? And there is that expression, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs or legs. But like, I sometimes I think that those sacrifices are worth it. Sirius was actually just preparing for the stage that evening and someone said, break a leg. He was like, I'm just not going to break mine. You were so excited to make that joke. Uh, that you like, I was so excited. <laughs> it's like not even funny. You and I really disagree about when you're funny. <laughs> hey, Vanessa. What does a pink panther say when he steps on an anthill? What? Dead end. 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 Okay. What was Beethoven's favorite fruit? I don't know. Something that goes da 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 da. Banana. Did I get it? So, Casper, now we are going to do Florilegia, 
which is traditionally a monastic practice, but that many of us do at home. You know, if you have a quote book in which you just write down all the beautiful quotes that you are collecting in your life, and then you read them as if they are their own text and talk about them in terms of one another, you are practicing florology at home. So we each picked a sparklet or a sentence or a bit of a sentence that really spoke to us, and we are going to read them, and then we will put them in conversation with each other as if they are their own text and see what wisdom comes. Casper, what sparklet did you pick? I picked, we're up here, Hermione screamed suddenly. How about you? I picked, pulling him farther underground. So Casper, why did you pick your sentence, your sparklet? We've been talking about this theme of innocence and how Hermione kind of loses hers a little bit and then regains it potentially. But here is a great moment, right? She hears footsteps downstairs, someone coming in the way that she and Harry also came in. And there's an immediate trust that this person's going to be there to help them. That's not guaranteed. And so I don't know, it, it spoke to that part of Hermione that still, you know, thinks help is coming, authority is to be trusted. That really struck me. How about you pulling him further underground? The reason that I picked that is that I feel like we are about to go into this like Alice in Wonderland place. We're falling down a rabbit hole here, right? And we're learning how crazy the story is that leads to the place that we have currently found ourselves in. And I feel like that's true. You know, if you start like going up your family tree, you're like, oh, my God, this person actually knew that person. And did you know that great grandma Sally was the first suffragette who like as you go down these rabbit holes and you find out the backstories to things, whole worlds open up. I love the Alice in Wonderland analogy because as you go down, you know, and then up again, I guess, into the Shrieking Shack, like the whole world is upside down. Like good is bad and bad is good. People you trusted are no longer trustworthy. People that were on the run are now here. Turns out Lupin is a werewolf. Like It turns out a cat can like stop the whomping willow. Right. The cat is friends with the dog who's actually a man. Like what is going on? Exactly. So pulling him farther underground, it felt like he's pulling him more and more into this like twilight zone, Alice in Wonderland, weird world where, yeah, where up is down and good is bad. I'm just seeing that image of like pulling into a spider web of not necessarily lies, but definitely whole new stories and angles and perspectives that Harry has just never seen before. Maybe Hermione is like saying, We're up here. Like, this is the truth. This is the clarity. We're in danger. You know, as Harry's being lured into like, oh, I do want to hear the whole story. So the next stage of Florilegia is that we will read these two sentences together and then put them in conversation with each other. Would you like to read them for us, Casper? Sure. We're up here, Hermione screamed suddenly, pulling him farther underground. Oh, I love those two together. It sounds like Hermione is pulling him underground. We're up here. Hermione screams suddenly, pulling him farther underground. That That like it makes it sound like Hermione is super duplicitous. Who is she pulling? I mean, I imagined Ron. So she's like, we're up here. While she's secretly pulling Ron underground is how this reads, if I add a context. Ooh, like she's helping him escape or like she's part of the plot. She's part of the plot. Whoa. I'm reading this as like while she's pretending to be all innocent and like pretending to try to get help, she's secretly making things worse and worse. Let me read it one more time. Yeah. We're up here, Hermione screamed suddenly, pulling him farther underground. 
Well, the other way to read it is to point to that difference between up here and underground. I don't know. It speaks to this kind of deceptiveness that we've been talking about in this episode. I don't know. Maybe this says something about the the duality in each of us, right? We're all capable of deception. We're all capable of lying. And Hermione's there with the best of them. Well, yeah. And she in the scene is like accusing Lupin of having this big secret when really everybody is in this room confessing their big secrets except Ms. Hermione Granger. Right. There's the duality. Yeah. She has a secret literally like on her chest. Right. Like she has the time turner as a necklace around her neck over her heart. And she's like, you're a betrayer. And the Crookshanks, I don't even know who you are. And Scabbers is in Scabbers. She's the only one who still has a secret. Casper, let's just read them in the other order once and see what that does. Pulling him farther underground. We're up here, Hermione screamed suddenly. Did that change anything for you? The thing that strikes me We talked about alliteration a little bit last week. And again, we have it here, screamed suddenly. Screamed, first of all, you know, she's really afraid, right? Like Hermione is not whispering subtly, like we're up here. Like she is giving it her all. And the fact that it's sudden is perhaps something to do with the fact that she's been actually quite quiet for most of this scene, right? This is really about Harry. And in some ways we're seeing Hermione step more and more fully into her like lead heroine role in this story she is totally willing to to take the lead she has been opposing harry's decisions in all sorts of ways of last book and that independence maybe shines out here she's breaking ranks with the rest of the trio she's making decisions herself oh yeah and sirius makes that explicit sirius says you were so brave for not trying to get a teacher to help you and hermione we know wanted to get a teacher and now as soon as hermione has the chance it's like ah, somebody come help so she's being put at odds with the rest of the group again yeah i think that maybe what this florilegia has called out for me is the ways in which hermione is really separate from everybody else and everything else that's going on in this room Well, and she's the only woman in the whole cast of characters in this room, right? Peter's also a man. My blessing will speak to that. I look forward to it. (laughs) This week's voicemail is from Emily Barber. Hi, Casper. Hi, Vanessa. This is Emily calling to you from South Carolina. I just got done listening to this latest episode on the chapter about Snape's grudge. And Vanessa, your blessing at the end for Hermione's bravery reminded me of a thought that I had about Neville from last week's episode. He raises his hand at the end of the chapter saying that he was the one who made the list of all the passwords, which allowed Sirius Black to get into the Gryffindor common room and almost kill Ron, we think. And I just want to bless Neville also for his bravery at raising his hand in front of all of these terrified kids and a furious Professor McGonagall for basically almost getting Ron killed. And that's just so brave of him. He didn't have to do it like that in front of everyone else. He could have gone to McGonagall later and said, it was me, I'm so sorry. And she could have sort of gotten furious at him individually and not in front of everyone, which is just humiliating on top of the guilt that he must be feeling. And so just a blessing for him for speaking up like that and blessings for anyone who speaks up and takes responsibility or speaks up in any way that it's hard, you know, even if you're sort of speaking out against your friends the way Hermione and Neville also sort of do throughout these books. Um, 
I think it's so important to be brave with your words in that way, especially when you know that it's what you should do, whether that's fessing up to something that you did wrong or speaking out in favor of something that you believe in. Um, So that's just my blessing for Neville and his bravery. Emily, thank you so much for that beautiful blessing. And yeah, it seems to be calling attention to there's like a real difference between being a tattletale and standing up to your friends, right? Loyalty has a time and a place and we have to, as Casper often says, we have to question what it is that we're being loyal to. So thank you so much for that blessing. Thanks, Emily. And just a little reminder, we'd love to hear your blessing. So if you're thinking about a voicemail, please send us a little blessing for a character on one of the pages of the chapters we've recently read. We look forward to hearing from you. And now it's time for our blessings. Vanessa, who are you going to give a blessing to from this chapter? I'm not even going to guess, but I think I know. Well, Hermione is the only woman in this chapter. So I'm going to offer her a blessing. And I'm going to bless her for the moment in which Lupin asks her, did you realize it by tracking my cycles or did you realize it when the moon showed as my Bogart? And Hermione says, both. And what it made me think of is that Hermione doesn't work so hard entirely because she just like wants to do well. This is a young woman who is curious, and this is genuinely what she's interested in. She already has the knowledge that Lupin is a werewolf. Like, she figures it out from Snape's essay. She figures it out from the Bogart. And then she puts in the extra effort to, like, track to make sure that she's right. And I feel like the only times that I put in that level of detail is when I'm genuinely curious. And I just love that Hermione isn't doing this for the grade. She's just a woman who is, like, genuinely in love with the world and the mysteries of the world and wants to learn as much as she can. So I want to offer a blessing to all of us who go down Wikipedia rabbit holes and just click and click and click. And like those moments of curiosity are gifts. So I would like to offer a blessing to Hermione. What about you, Casper? My blessing this week is for Remus Lupin. We mentioned the moment where there's this sudden understanding between him and Sirius without needing to say a word. And, you know, I just think back of friendships that I haven't spoken to friends in years and, you know, I might see them at a party or even a family gathering, right? Maybe a relative that you haven't seen in so long. And I I guess I just want to bless that connection that still transcends time and space and the love that is felt between these two characters on the page and between, you know, us even after many years apart. So if there's a, a friend who's maybe come into your life recently in your thoughts or you've just been reminded of them in some way, maybe for me, this is a blessing to reach out to them and, and just rekindle that relationship. I'm right here, honey. <laughs> After all this time, <laughs> always. <laughs> oh, God. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Check out our new video released last Friday and support us on Patreon so you can have more videos like that in all of our lives. And please share them on social media. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook, and leave us a little review on iTunes. Next week, we'll read Chapter 18, Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs through the theme of isolation. 
This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Ariana Nedelman, Vanessa Sultan, and me, Casper Terkyle. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thanks this week to Emily Barber for our voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Stephanie Paulsell, and the fabulous Kathy Tu from the Nancy Podcast for coming and sharing her story. We'll see you all next week. Bye. Did she make you work really hard? She's, I'm sorry. She can be so mean, let she, me tell you. I like, know. Sometimes <laughs> I'm kind of scared of her. Does she ever tell you you're not sounding human? Because Matt likes to tell us that a lot. He's like, you know what you sound like? Not human. Vanessa has the problem that she doesn't sound sincere. So sometimes she sounds super sarcastic. It's like, I'm really sorry that happened. (laughs) It's just my Valley Girl accent. That is, I mean it. Vouch for me that my face shows sincerity. Yeah, your face is like very hardly trying. (laughs) And then I'm like, oh my God, that's tragic. (laughs) Oh, that's really good.